When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, Two Footed Podcast. Today, 
is Monday. It is the 12th of February. Hope you're all well and having yourselves a pleasant day. Weather's decent today. It feels more spring than winter, which is nice. Positive, positive mental attitude today. We had nine games in the Premier League over the weekend. We'll rattle through those quickly. Manchester City beat Everton 2-0 to kick things off on Saturday. I did say Erling Haaland was due a goal. He got two of them, 71 and 85 minutes. City never really needed to get out of first gear in this one. Quite a straightforward game. Everton defended well, to their credit. They did defend well, but they offered very little going forward, which was to be expected. They weren't going to get much opportunity. They had 27% of the ball and only managed to get one shot on target from five total shots. City, though, were quite wasteful. I mean, they had 19 total shots, only managed three on target, but then obviously did score with two of them, so not to get best game for Jordan Pickford. But for City, this is the time of year where they start to roll. This is the time of year where they start to put wins together and start to show why they've won three Premier League titles in a row, why they've won five of the last six. They're going to be formidable. They've got Haaland back and scoring. They've got KDB back and assisting. Phil Foden is playing out of his mind. Bernardo Silva is due a run like Bernardo Silva always puts together. I've been really, really impressed with the way Rodri has played in the last couple of weeks as well. I mean, he's always great, but I think he's actually kicking it up a level in recent weeks. One thing that did come out of this game that I was a bit surprised by, Ben Godfrey kicked Ederson in the face and VAR reviewed it and nothing came of it. I wonder if that one gets revisited. I do. I wonder if that one gets revisited. Um, Yeah, comfortable win for City. So they are second in the league, two points behind Liverpool. But they do have that game in hand, which is at home to Brentford, a game you'd expect them to win. Everton, this weekend really could have worked out very, very badly for them. The defeat early on, we were looking at the fixtures and thinking, okay, well, Luton are at home, Forrester at home. Everton might wake up in the morning with quite a big gap, but as we'll see, it didn't work out as disastrously as it could have. But they are still in the bottom three, and they are still staring at another points deduction. So we'll see what comes of that. Wolves nil, Brentford two. Massive, massive win for Brentford, who've obviously been very disappointing this season. The Ivan Tony suspension, the biggest factor in that. Um... Christian Norgaard scored with a close-range header off a set piece on 35 minutes, and then Ivan Tony wrapped it up on 77. Wolves had some good chances in the game, but couldn't take them. They had the majority of the ball. They'll probably feel a little bit aggrieved that they didn't get something from the game. But for Brentford to go to Molyneux and win, that's a big result because Wolves have been so good at home this year. Brentford are now 14th. 25 points from their 23 games. They're six points clear of the drop zone, so they can be confident that they'll stay in the division. For Wolves, they stay 10th. That could change tonight, obviously, with Chelsea taking on Crystal Palace. 
But Wolves will be happy with where they are. They'll be happy with, with 32 points at this stage of the season. Given how they came into the season, losing their manager right on the eve of the season, you can't really complain. You know, they lost Huang to the Asian Cup for a month. They lost Neto to injury for two months. They've had some other injuries. They've had some other players away at AFCON and different things. And yet they've just continued to grind along and pick up points. Credit to them. Tenth in the league after 24 games. It's a good achievement considering what the view on them was prior to the season. The only negative to come out of the weekend for Brentford was a bizarre post-match interview with Ivan Tony. Now, Thomas Frank, as we know, has talked about Ivan Tony a couple of times in terms of his future. And I think the world believes Ivan Tony is leaving Brentford at the end of this season. He's got one year left in his contract. He's shown no inclination to sign an extension. He is going to be subject of pretty big bids from pretty big clubs. And everybody is aware of the fact that Ivan Tony is a high-caliber footballer who, with the greatest of respect to the club, deserves to play for a, a bigger a bigger club than Brentford, a club that's going to challenge for major honours. Even if it's just the FA Cup and the League Cup, and even if you don't have class that as major honours, he deserves to be at a club that's going to win some honours at this point in his career. So Thomas Frank has, has said he expects Ivan Tony to leave in the summer. And Ivan Tony came out and said, I took that as he doesn't want me here. It's the bizarrest thing. This club and this manager stood by him while he was suspended for gambling on football. Never a negative word has been uttered by anybody at Brentford after Ivan Tony let them down in the way that he did. And nobody has had anything bad to say about him. But yet when the manager says his expectation is that the player will be sold in the summer... The player comes out and says, oh, it just means he doesn't want me. Quite the opposite, Ivan. Quite the opposite. And here's the thing. It's not just the fact that he was banned for the nine months. Ivan Tony has been caught on camera making disparaging comments about Brentford in the past. And the club and the key personnel have never once publicly said anything negative about him. Even after he was caught on camera making those negative comments, there was no there was no even leaks about the club being annoyed with him or being frustrated with him or someone pulling him to one side and having a conversation with him. They've just let him be him and do pretty much whatever he wants. And to then turn around and behave like this, it just feels a little bit like he spat back in their face. And it kind of knocked the shine off what should have been a really good weekend for Brentford. Uh, moving on, Fulham 3, Bournemouth 1. Bobby D. Cordova-Reed opened the scoring on 6 minutes. Rodrigo Meniz made it 2 on 36. Marcus Sinisi did pull one back on 50, but Rodrigo Meniz made it 3-1 on 52. Brentford had a lot of the ball 
they had an awful lot of shots in this game, but they made a lot of bad decisions. There was some bad defensive decision-making, which cost them two of their goals. And there was some really poor decision-making in the final third. Shots that were taken that were just plainly greed from certain players. Players who turned down the opportunity to pass to others in better shooting positions, whether it's a lack of composure, whether it's a lack of being team orientated, I don't know. But it was really disappointing to see some of the shot choices taken by some of the Bournemouth players in this game. I mean, 25 shots turning into only four on target is very, very poor. Especially when you've got players in that team who are capable of scoring goals. Like you look at that starting 11, Tavernier and Sinistera wide, Solanke up front, Alex Scott in the 10, Ryan Christie in midfield. They're all players capable of scoring goals. I didn't like the team selection from Brentford, I have to say. I don't I don't feel like there's any justification for playing Lloyd Kelly over Milos Kerkes at this point. And I don't really feel like there's much justification for playing Tavernier over either Oatara or Semenyo. Preferably Oatara, who I think would give you a real outlet, which I feel like you're lacking at the moment. Anyway, good win for Fulham. Needed win for Fulham after three without a win, uh, including obviously a disappointing result last time out against Burnley where they went 2-0 up and then dropped the points. Uh, but they go to 12th in the league, 27 point, 29 points. They jump above Bournemouth, though Bournemouth do have the game in hand. Uh, moving on, Tottenham 2, Brighton 1. Tottenham made it hard for themselves and left it really, really late, but they get the three points. Pascal Gross put Brighton 1 up on uh, 17 minutes from the penalty spot after Danny Welbeck was fouled by Mickey van de Ven. Papi Matar Sar equalised on 61 minutes in somewhat fortunate circumstances. He broke into the box, tried to square it. Lewis Dunk lunged, got a good foot to the ball, played it straight against the post, and it bounced literally to Matar Sar's feet. And he tapped it into an empty net to make it 1 1. And then in stoppage time, Brighton were pushing to find a winner little bit naive, left themselves exposed to the back, far too open. And when your centre-backs are as slow as people like Lewis Dunk, it's not the best idea. Spurs turned the ball over, broke like lightning down the left with Madison, Richarlison, and then Sun. Sun charged ahead, squared the ball across, and Brennan Johnson arrived at the back post at full, full speed to tap home and give Tottenham... A massive win, a win they very much needed to maintain pace with Arsenal in, thir- well, they're still a few, five points behind, but they have them in sight at least, um, and to keep themselves ahead of Aston Villa or go back ahead of Aston Villa, as the case was this weekend. Um, Spurs fourth, Brighton ninth, one win in, in five from Brighton. I didn't like the team selection at all. I don't understand how 
you can have some of the quality that Brighton have and still be rolling out Danny Welbeck and Adam Lallana in 2024. I really don't get that. Like, you've got Ansu Fati and Evan Ferguson sitting on the bench, both of whom are not just more talented than Lalana and Welbeck, they're just flat out better than Lalana and Welbeck. You've got Beliba on the bench, and yet you're playing Pascal Gross and Billy Gilmore as a double pivot, which offers minimal defensive protection to your centre-backs. I know Brighton fans are talking up Van Hecke. The guy can't defend at all. Yes, he's pretty good on the ball. He's not good defensively. And Lewis Dunk, as I've said before, is having a dreadful season. I also still don't understand the fascination with Jason Steele. Bart Verbruggen is a better goalkeeper. He sat on the bench kicking his heels. And Jason Steele is offering very, very little for the good of your team. Uh, moving on, Luton won, Sheffield went, Sheffield United three. What a stupid division. Um, <clears throat> Luton, who've been really good of late, and they've been really tough to beat at home, just couldn't cope with the pace of Sheffield United on the counter. Uh, Cameron Archer missed a sitter and then rectified the issue with a really, really nicely taken individual goal on 30 minutes. Six minutes later, we get one of the worst penalties I've seen all season. One of the worst penalty awardings I've seen all season. Set piece, ball comes across. Sheffield United player makes contact with with his head. Nothing comes of it. Nobody complains. Nobody puts their hand up. Nobody appeals for a penalty. Game goes on. Next thing, game is stopped. VAR have reviewed and found a handball. There is a Luton Town player jumping back to head the ball, slightly off balance, and has his hand out, trying to regain his balance, and the ball hits his hand. It's never a penalty. It's never, ever a penalty. I'm sorry. If that is the definition of the handball rule, the handball rule needs to change. Now, on 52 minutes, Luton are gifted a very soft penalty in similar circumstances. So it does even itself out. But still, neither of these penalties should have been given. James McAtee scored Sheffield United's. Carlton Morris scored Luton's. But Luton couldn't find an equaliser despite possessional dominance. More shots, more shots on target, etc., etc. And Sheffield United caught them cold on 72 minutes with Vinicius Sousa scoring the third and final Sheffield United goal. Now, it doesn't lift Sheffield United off the foot of the table, but it gets them level on points with Burnley. It gets them within six points of Everton and within seven points of Luton. And it gives them a little bit of hope, but that's a bit all it'll do. Uh, For Luton, this was an opportunity. This really was an opportunity to open daylight between themselves and Everton, turn that one-point lead over Everton into a four-point lead with the game in hand. But unfortunately, they they, they shot the bed, quite frankly. Uh, Very, very poor. 
Liverpool three, Burnley one. Liverpool did not play well and rightly went in level at half time. Diogo Jota had put them one up on 31 minutes. But a great Dara O'Shea header gave Burnley a deserved tie at half time. Liverpool were much better in the second half. The withdrawal of Trent Alexander-Arnold, the introduction of Harvey Elliott and Curtis Jones moving to right back just gave them more balance. And uh, Luis Diaz put them ahead on 52 before Darwin Nunes wrapped it up on 79. Liverpool remain top of the league. Two points clear of City, but as I said before, City do have the game in hand. And Burnley stay second from bottom, but have now been caught on points by Sheffield United. Moving on, Nottingham Forest 2, Newcastle 3. Bruno Gamerich put Forest 1 up on 10 minutes. Anthony Alanga, who had earlier missed a really good 1v1 opportunity, got another really good 1v1 opportunity as Newcastle's defence just seemed to open up. Seemingly without any kind of prompting at all, Alanga sprinted through and finished really, really well. Um, Fabian Schaar with a lovely finish on 43 minutes to put the tune back ahead. But once again, Newcastle just unable to hold on to a lead. And Callum Hudson-Odoi, with the aid of a big deflection, to be fair, equalised just in the stroke of half time. But in 66 minutes, Bruno Gomerish gets the winner. And the tune, who had more of the ball, but didn't really create anything near what their possessional dominance should have given them. Toon snuck out with a win, but a win is a win, and they won't care how it came about. They've moved up to seventh. They are five points behind Manchester United, who have finally uh, seemingly found a bit of form. They're just ahead of uh, West Ham on goal difference, a point ahead of Brighton, and four points ahead of Wolves. Toon will still have eyes on a European spot then. We'll see what comes of it. They lose too many games. They've lost 10 this season, which really isn't good. Uh, only Wolves in the top half have lost as many. Uh, last season came too early for Newcastle. That's the be-all and the end-all of it. Last season came too early for them. If this season had come off the back of Eddie Howe's first little spell in charge when he took over from Steve Bruce and took them from the foot of the table into mid-table, and then they'd done this, their progression would make more sense. But because they overperformed last year and got a top-four finish, they reset their own expectations, and they reset them too high. But they're a good team with a lot of good players. And you can see the bones of a team starting to take shape. It's just that, like I said, the expectations on them coming into the season are not, you know, Europa League football. They're not They're not seventh. The expectation was top four because they got in it last year. Um, for Forrest, 16th. Now three defeats out of four, no wins in four. Nuno's new manager bounce seems to be over. And obviously they are also facing a 10-point points deduction. They'd gone to Newcastle and beat them. I, I thought they could do it again, but they just 
They just struggled defensively, especially off set pieces in this one. That's what it came down to. On then to Sunday's games, and Arsenal put in their best performance of the season away to West Ham. Uh, pure dominance for the first half hour, but as is their way, couldn't find a goal. On 32 minutes, the first goal arrived, as ever with Arsenal, a set piece, Declan Rice with a corner, just woeful from West Ham, allowing the ball to come across in the six-yard box and nobody getting their head close to it. William Saliba, uh, the finisher there. On 41 minutes, Bakayo Saka bursts through, gets brought down, Stonewall penalty, steps up and scores. On 44, free kick, Declan Rice whips it in. It's a gorgeous delivery. Gabrielle, first to it, free header, more dreadful defending. 3-0. And you think at that point, well, this game is over, but surely now West Ham will get their act together and at least play for a bit of pride. Uh, within three minutes, Leandro Trossard made it 4-0 as West Ham's defence just went AWOL. So in the halftime, and you think second half, surely, surely they will get their act together. And for 15 minutes they did. And then Bakayo Saka waltzed through the defence and made it five. And then two minutes later, Saka lays the ball back kind of halfway between Trossard and Odegaard, who get in each other's way. The ball runs free. And Declan Rice steps on to it about 25 yards out, hits it first time, puts it in the net. And it's a great hit. Like, it is a great hit. I'm not taking anything away from Declan Rice here. It's a tremendous hit. There's not one West Ham player within 10 yards. Not one within 10 yards of the ball. There is no pressure on the ball at all, you are getting spanked 5-0 at home. Half the crowd has already left. You would think there'd be the slightest bit of pride, but there was not. A disgraceful performance by West Ham. They should all be ashamed of themselves. Every player in that West Ham dressing room should be ashamed of themselves. Arsenal were excellent. Arsenal did all they could do. But that performance from West Ham is unforgivable. And <clears throat> I did see people saying it wasn't a penalty. It was. It was a Stonewall penalty. I missed one thing in the Forest-Newcastle game. A one he's played through. And he's very blatantly brought down by the goalkeeper. Now, I think the argument is that he wasn't in full control of the ball. I'm sorry, that's just not a good argument. He's getting to that ball. Forrest were robbed. Forrest were robbed. Arsenal Arsenal got exactly what they warranted with their performance, which was to give West Ham an absolute thumping. Uh, final game then. Aston Villa won, Manchester United 2. United finally win away to a team within the top nine under Eric Ten Hag. Uh, it only took them a year and a half. That's dreadful. 62 games. Um, and they do the double over Villa. And you'll remember they hadn't beaten a team in the top half this season. 
before they played Villa the first time. Um, now they've obviously beaten Wolves twice. Wolves weren't in the top half when they played United either time. Uh, Rasmus Hoysland scored on 17 minutes. Set piece for United. Corner comes across. Harry Maguire gets up highest, heads it down. Rasmus Hoysland looks like he's miles offside. And then you see Ollie Watkins just hanging about, showing no urgency to get out. Really, really poor. Uh, and Hoysland finishes first time. From there, Villa were the better team. They just were the better team. And they finally got their equaliser on 67 minutes from Douglas Luiz. Uh, Onana, to his credit, had made three really, really good saves. And United were defending like their lives depended on it. But Villa were cutting through them and getting good opportunities. Couldn't find a goal. Finally find a goal through Douglas Luiz. And you think, right, Villa should go and win this now. They're the better team. And they're playing better here. But it was United who get the winner. 86 minutes, Delos cross, and that man, Scott McTominay, Manchester United's best attacking player, scoring once again. He is so important to them in whatever role they choose to use him in. He's up to eight goals in all competitions, which is a career high. He is seven in the Premier League this year. And he's been absolutely vital to them over and over again. It was his goal here that gets them the win. He obviously scored against Wolves as well recently. Scored the two goals that beat Chelsea. Scored the opener against Sheffield United. And scored the two goals that beat Brentford. So if we say two points in the Brent, sorry, three points in the Brentford game. Uh, three points in the Chelsea game, two points here at the weekend. That's eight points that he alone has won them. And again, he scored the first goal in a 2-1 win over Sheffield United. He scored in a 4-3 win over Wolves. There's another four points they would have lost out on without his goals. Now, he didn't get the winners in those games. Delo got the winner against Sheffield United. Kobe Mainu got the winner against Wolves. But without McTominay's goals, they're only getting draws in those games. Without his goal here, they're getting a draw. Without his goals against Brentford and Chelsea, they're losing. Like he's scoring vital goals for them in the Premier League. And obviously... He did score for them in the Champions League against Galatasaray, uh, where they took one of their four points, and it was his goal that kind of got them the, the draw. So, like, he has been vital to them this season. And he gets an awful lot of disrespect. He's obviously not a not a top, top player. But when used properly, I think he can be a good player, not for a team that has ambitions to win major honours. Certainly not. But for a mid-table team, I think he could be a really valuable player. Like, I think if you put him in West Ham, I think he'd be a good player for them. I think if you put him in the Wolves team, he'd be a good player for them. Put him at Fulham. Again, you know, Bournemouth, Brentford, Palace, any of those teams would be better off for having Scott McTominay. 
Now, where he struggles is against deep blocks. That was the issue. He's not technically a high-level player. But off the ball, if you just get him running into the box, he's 6-3, good in the air, has a good first touch, and is a good finisher. He could get you a lot of goals from midfield if you gave him if you gave him the right role in the right type of team. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk some AFCON. We'll talk some Asian Cup. See you after this. Right, we back. So, Asian Cup at the weekend. Qatar, the host nation, winning 3-1 against Jordan. Akram Afif with a hat-trick. A penalty on 22 minutes. A penalty on 73 minutes. And a penalty on 95 minutes. Yassan Al-Namath did score one for Jordan on 67 minutes. And to be fair, Jordan had most of the ball and more shots and will probably feel a little bit aggrieved, but I don't really feel like they could have too many complaints about any of the penalty awards. I didn't think anyway. I'd like to watch them back. I haven't watched the highlights of the game since watching uh, the game kind of with one eye because it was all at the same time as the Liverpool games. I had it on one screen. I was kind of half watching it. I must go back and rewatch. But Jordan, great run to the final. Like a genuinely great run to the final for them. And hopefully this will give them real confidence going into the World Cup qualifiers because they look a talented team. They really do look a talented team. And we could do it more emerging football nations, especially in the Middle East. Now, they're... World Cup qualifying group is tough. They're in with Saudi, they're in with Tajikistan and Pakistan. Tajikistan showed in this tournament they're no pushovers. We know the Saudis are strong. They've only taken one point from their opening two games. Uh, They drew with Tajikistan and lost to Saudi, away to Saudi. So, no, home to Saudi. They lost home to Saudi. So they're going to have some work to do. But I just feel like there's there's a, a good technical level among a lot of these Middle Eastern countries in terms of the players. Where they tend to fall a little bit short is the physical level. But they play good football. Give them that. Um, Qatar, I mean, they're becoming one of the powers in Asian football, without question, that's back-to-back Asian Cups. They're top of their group uh, in the World Cup qualifying. They're in with Kuwait, India, and Afghanistan. You would expect them to run the table there and win all their games and get through to the next round. I would hope that Jordan will be one of the countries that also get through into the next round because I, I do I do think they showed quite a bit in this competition and they outperformed Australia, Iran, Saudi, Japan, South Korea, like all of whom would have been far more strongly favoured to get to the final than them. And I know that the path broke well for them, but still, it's not like they had walkovers. It's not like they didn't have to go through some good teams. Iraq are a good team. Tajikistan are a good team. 
credit to them for what they what they achieved. And credit to, to Qatar. Going back-to-back back in international tournaments is tough. It is tough. And they've achieved it now. On to the AFCON. On Saturday, we had a fairly dour affair in the third and fourth place playoff between South Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Nil-nil, went to penalties, and South Africa win 6-5 to claim third. Great achievement for Bafana Bafana, a team made up largely of, you know, home-based players, no star names, just graft, team spirit, direction, an understanding of what their roles were. And they've overcome a lot of talent deficits in a number of games, including this one, because there is some real talent in that uh, that Congolese team. In the final, I, I don't know how they've done this. <laughs> Ivory Coast 2, Nigeria 1, and on the day, 100% deserved. 100% deserved. Nigeria went one up on 38 minutes through William Truce Kong. Frank Kessie equalized on 62 minutes. And then Sebastian Halar scoring the winner on 81. You couldn't be happier for him after everything he's been through in the last couple of years. What a wonderful story. But what a story for the Ivory Coast. They stumble their way through the group stage. They sack Jean-Louis Gasset. When they sacked him, they thought they were going out. It was only that results went in their favour elsewhere that they were able to sneak in as one of the best third-place teams out of the group stage. And then to go on the run that they've gone on has been really, really impressive. Senegal, favourites, knock them out. Mali, really strong team, knock them out. Democratic Republic of Congo, a strong team, knock them out. And then Nigeria were heavy favourites in this game. And they've knocked them out as well. What an amazing turnaround. And I'd love to know what the former manager's thinking as he's watching that game. His team, his squad... And he sat at home while they go on to win the AFCON. A massive achievement on home soil. I think a star is born with Simon Adingra. I think last season, what I saw from him during his loan spell, he really did look like he was ready to kick on to the next level. He's been a little bit hit and miss with Brighton this season. But I think we found one of the explanations for that. He's much more comfortable playing off the left than he is off the right. I think Brighton have done it again. I think come summer 2025, we're going to be seeing Simon Adingra moving for major money. What a talent. Todd Kasunu at centre-back had a really strong tournament when he stepped in after Diamande got hurt, kept his place. Performed really, really well. Couldn't be happier for Sebastian Hilar after what he's been through. Really nice to see Jean-Michel Serri performing so well. 
he was written off by a lot of people as well. And Seiko Fafana and Frank Kessie, two lads who I think should be playing in Europe for top clubs. But both of them are playing in the Saudi Pro League in their primes. That's the decision that they both made. It is what it is. They both showed what's been missed by European football with them not being in the mix. Congrats to Ivory Coast. Congrats to anybody connected to the Ivory Coast, anyone of that heritage. What a great achievement. Uh, We had some big football matches around Europe over the weekend. We might as well touch on some of them as well. In the Bundesliga, the big game was, of course, Bayer Leverkusen against Bayern Munich. Xabi Alonso's men, top, unbeaten, all season across all competitions, facing their biggest test with Bayern coming to town. And they didn't just beat them, they wiped the floor with them. Bayern had one shot on target all game. I've never seen Harry Kane as entirely nullified as he was in that game. They completely nullified Leroy Sané and Jamal Musiala as well. It was a tactical masterclass from Xabi Alonso and his players executed to absolute perfection. Florian Wirtz is a superstar in the making. Alex Grimaldo is having one of the all-time great fullback slash wingback seasons. Defensively, they're rock solid. The midfield is functional. Really, really functional. But really impressive. Granit Xhaka got his lowest rating of the season by the different outlets, you know, Sofa Score and Foot Mob and whoever else. And it showed how meaningless those ratings are, how stupid they are, how much they reward pointless possession over actual performance because he was outstanding. Defensively, he was immense, along with Robert Andrich in midfield with him. This was a Leverkusen team missing multiple key starters. Multiple key starters. So no Palacios in midfield. He's been incredible for them this season. Frimpong wasn't fit enough to start. He did come on and get the third goal, but he wasn't there. Hoffman wasn't fit enough to start, so he was on the bench. He also came on. And no Victor Boniface. Stanisic opened the scoring on 18 minutes. Grimaldo made a two on 50. And then Frimpong on a counter after Manuel Nauer had gone up for a corner, made it three. Bayern were desperate. Absolutely desperate. And ladies and gentlemen, in the year of our Lord 2024, Eric Dyer played all 95 minutes for Bayern Munich. Eric Dyer and Postacoglu lost both starting centre-backs for Spurs. A club who went into the season with only three centre-backs. And rather than play the third of those centre-backs in the absence of the first two, he decided to play two full-backs instead. In Emerson Royale and Ben Davies. And I know Ben Davies has played a bunch of centre-back He's a fullback. That's how little he thought of Eric Dyer. And here we are in big old 2024 
with Eric Dyer starting and stinking the place out for Bayern Munich. Now, he wasn't the only one. Upa Meccano was awful. He spent his game trying to find Florian Wirtz in the pitch, and he failed for the entirety of his time on the pitch. Pavlovich looked considerably out of his depth in midfield. Leon Goretzka looks like whatever tranquilizers and horse vitamins they pumped into him a few years ago have aged him enormously. Sasha Bowie was playing left wing back. He's a right back. They had on their bench Rafael Guerrero, who's a really good left wing back. They also had on the bench Joshua Kimmich. They also had on the bench Matthias Delict. And yet they chose to play Pavlovich, who's not ready for that level, and Eric Dyer and Bowie out of position. Very, very strange behavior from Thomas Tuchel, who I don't think will be at Bayern come next season. Um, so, Bayer Leverkusen remain top of the Bundesliga. They are five points clear with 13 games left. Now, you wouldn't write off Bayern, but right now, Leverkusen look a very, very good bet to win the Bundesliga. In Serie A, we had some big games. The biggest of them, Roma 2, Inter 4. A Serbi put Inter 1-0 up on 17 minutes. Gianluca Mancini equalised on 28, and Stephen El Shawari made a 2-1 to Roma on 44. Marcus Turam got Inter level on 49. Angelino scored an own goal to put Inter 3-2 up on 56, and Alessandro Bastoni wrapped things up on 93 minutes to ensure that Inter remain top of the league looking very comfortable. Seven points clear of Juve with the same number of games played. Now, Juve do play tonight at home to Udinese, but Inter look pretty much unstoppable in Serie A this season. The other big game, AC Milan won, Napoli nil. Theo Hernandez with the only goal of the game, giving Milan a big win over one of their great rivals. Um... Rafael Liao with a phenomenally good assist in that game. Milan are third. They're a point behind Juve. Lazio are ninth. They're ninth. This is this is one of the worst title defences I've ever seen. And it's all the fault of the owner because of what he did to Spalletti, automatically renewing his contract without asking him if he was okay with staying beyond the agreed term. Appointing Rudy Garcia, who, like, let's be honest, Rudy Garcia was a good manager 10 years ago. He has not been a good manager in the years in between. You sack him and somehow you decide Walter Mazzari is the guy to bring in. Walter Mazzari also hasn't been a good manager in 10 years. Absolutely bizarre. And things don't look bright for them. 
because we know that Osterman is going to leave in the summer. I would be shocked if Gvicha Kvalaskelia isn't there. Is there, sorry, is there next season. I think he'll be off. The players you brought in in the summer haven't worked out. Your January signings as yet not working out. Doesn't look promising. Really doesn't look promising. But great win for Milan. Great win for Milan. Um, In France, the big game was PSG against Lille. PSG were fairly comfortable 3-1 winners. Uh, Goncalo Ramos and Alexandro Ongol and then Randall Kolomuani. Uh, now, Lille had gone one up through Yusuf Yaksiki, but PSG were in control for the entirety of the game. And it just felt like they could have scored at any time. And what was interesting in this one was that PSG on their bench, Marquinhos, Kylian Mbappe, neither of whom were brought on. Ashraf Hakimi started on the bench. Warren Zaire Emery started on the bench. Gianluigi Donnarumma started on the bench. This is going up against a team that came into the weekend challenging for a Champions League spot. And PSG showed them absolutely no respect and played half a team and still won comfortably. In the other notable game in the French League, Mets 2, Monaco 3. Now, Mets, Nice 2, Monaco 3. Um, Zakaria scored to put Monaco 1 up. Laborde equalised to make it 1-1. Zakaria scored again to make it 2-1 to Monaco. Then Dante was sent off, but Nice got back into it with Gisand getting an equaliser on 74 but Alexander Golovin scoring on 76 to get the three points from Monaco, who closed the gap on Nice to one point. And Nice have just hit a bit of a rough patch here. Two defeats in the last four, only one win in those four. Their their lack of goal scoring is now a problem. They've only scored 22 goals in 21 games. They've only conceded 14, which is incredible. But the inability to score goals is a real issue there. They're they're in, in for a fight to try and hold on to a Champions League spot, in my opinion, if they can't score goals. Um, in Portugal, we had one big game, which was sporting against Braga and sporting put Braga to the sword. 5-0, Trinquiao, Eduardo Cresma, Victor Jacques, Daniel Braganca, and Nuno Santos with the goals there. Now, Sporting are second in the table, level on points with Benfica, but do have a game in hand. Benfica had the opportunity to go two points clear last night. They played Vitoria and dropped points and almost dropped all the points. Uh, Thiago Silva scored from the penalty spot for Vitoria. Rafa Silva equalised for Benfica. Then Benfica went 2-1 up through Andre Silva. And then Berevkovic was sent off on 64 minutes. Arthur Cabral scoring in the 90th minute to give Benfica a share of the spoils. But this could not have gone any better 
for Sporting with their big win over the team who entered the weekend in fourth and actually remained fourth, and with Benfica dropping two points, Sporting now know that should they win their game in hand, they'll have a full three-point advantage on Benfica. Porto played tonight. They're seven points behind the other two. Uh, finally then, oh no, not finally, hang on. We Before we get to La Liga, in the Eredivisie, the big game of the weekend, Heronveen against Ajax. Heronveen were 14th going into the weekend. Ajax had found form until recently. There was a lot of talk about the leadership of Jordan Henderson. Well, he must have left his leadership back in England because he showed none of it in Saudi Arabia and he's shown none of it in the Eredivisie thus far. Heronveen 3, Ajax 2. You love to see it. Uh, in La Liga then, we had the big game at the top of the table. Real Madrid against Girona, and it was no contest. Real were just rampant, absolutely rampant. Vinicius Jr. on six minutes with a worldie. Jude Bellingham on 35 and again on 54. He's just unstoppable this year. And then Rodrigo wrapping it up on 61. Real r- rampant. Girona just not on their level. Just not on their level. Um, Real are going to run away with this league. They are now five points clear of Girona and 10 points clear of Barcelona. You would expect that Girona will start to come back to the pack a little bit. Uh, Martin Samuel, the bought and paid for shill at the Daily Mail, writing stories because he's been asked to write them by the City Football Group about how Girona are this, you know, little engine that could. Um, they're backed by a nation. They're not the legend that could. Uh, Atletico Madrid lost at the weekend to Sevilla. They are fourth, three points behind Barcelona. Uh, that will not have done much for the mood of one Diego Simeone. We'll bounce through the break. We'll come back with the news and the gossip. See you after this. Right, welcome back. So, over the weekend, I should have pointed out that Sheffield United ensured that they could not be the worst team in Premier League history. Their win means that they have two points more than Derby County achieved in the 07-08 season. Uh, So they're now focused in on the next teams on that list. Of course, that tragic Sunderland team um, who... I mean, really and truly had no business being in the division. But 15 points, uh, that's just two points for Burnley and Sheffield United to get to overtake them. Uh, Then we're looking at Huddersfield, uh, 16 points. They should both overtake them. Then it's Aston Villa, 17 points um, from the 15-16 season. What a disgrace for, for Aston Villa. Like a club the size of Aston Villa to get... 17 points is just shambolic. Um, after that, then, gets a little bit tricky. You've got Sunderland's 0-2-0-3, 19-point effort. Um, so they, they'll both want to pass that, not be one of the five worst teams in history. Uh, then you're going way back to Swindon um, in the first 
it's the second season of the Premier League, the 93-94 season. Uh, that's the target. They've got to try and get to Swindon. Um, right. Bit of news. We have more talk about this blue card system that the powers that be want to implement. And seemingly, should a goalkeeper be shown a blue card, teams will have two choices. Number one is that an outfield player can be designated to go and goal for the duration of the sin bin. And they will be allowed to use their hands and do all the things that goalkeepers do. Option two is they can make a substitution, but it is a permanent substitution. And they can't take off the sin bin goalkeeper. So they would have to make a permanent substitution, taking off an outfield player to replace them with a substitute goalkeeper. Then when the sin bin is over, they have another decision to make. Do they put the original goalkeeper in an outfield position? Or do they sub off that player? So they might have to make two subs if a goalkeeper gets himself blue carded. So personally, I'm in favor of a bit of chaos, but that sounds mental to me. Genuinely sounds mental to me. Uh, Should highlight what a good weekend of sport it was in general uh, with the Six Nations and Ireland's rampant win over the Italians, and obviously the Super Bowl last night. And it wasn't by any means a good Super Bowl. The game itself was trash up until the overtime. But by God, how good is Patrick Mahomes? Like, he stank the place out for most of regulation. Rode Travis Kelsey's brilliance to get themselves to overtime and then just did what Patrick Mahomes does and led them down the field to win his third and their third Super Bowl in their fourth Super Bowl appearance of the Mahomes era, they've been to the AFC Championship game in all five years. Whether or not you're an American football fan, you have to appreciate greatness. And you're witnessing genuine greatness in Patrick Mahomes. And at his age, which I believe he's 28. He is 28. There's a real shot that he can catch Brady. There genuinely is a chance that he can catch Brady. This was by far the weakest of the Chiefs Super Bowl winning teams. His receiving core is basically non-existent outside of Kelsey, who's the tight end. There's no real run game. They're not great against the run defensively and yet he just overcomes all three-time Super Bowl champion three-time Super Bowl MVP two-time MVP one-time NFL offensive player of the year he's a three-time all-pro selection a six-time pro bowl selection he's led the NFL in yards once and in touchdowns twice And he's 28 years of age. He's got the highest career player uh, playoff passer rating in history. 
the highest career passing yards per game in history. Highest total yards by a quarterback in a season in history. And highest passing touchdowns in a single postseason in history. Now, that's a tied record. But it is outrageous what he's doing. He is ahead of Brady's pace in his career across the first five seasons. And it's it's not showing signs of slowing down. Brady had that big lull in the middle of his career. Not where he stopped being great. He continued to be great. But the team stopped being as great. They were still very good. They just weren't Super Bowl winners. They lost two. Um, but I don't know if anyone can stop this guy. He is just, he is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Is it six? It might be six AFC championship games that he's been to. Um, and he's won four, going to four Super Bowls and winning three of them. That is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous how good this guy is. Anyway, let's do the gossip. Uh, Argentina midfielder Enzo Fernandez wants to leave Chelsea and join Barcelona. I don't believe he wants to join Barcelona. I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to go to Spain, but I would imagine he wants to join Real Madrid. Bayern Munich have included Joao Polina on their shortlist for new midfielder this summer. Liverpool are monitoring Tosin Adarabayo. The Reds are also considering a move for Anthony Robinson. No, they're not. You see, do you know why I know they're not? Because they don't have a manager. They don't know who their manager is going to be. So why would they look at Anthony Robinson, who A, isn't good enough to play for Liverpool, and B, might not be suited to how the new manager wants to play. Uh, Lloyd Kelly could be in line for a move to Tottenham or Liverpool with AC Milan, Juventus and several German clubs. I like Lloyd Kelly. I think he's decent, but he's like he hasn't kicked on the way he was expected to at Bournemouth. Uh, Barcelona have made contact with Everton over a potential deal for Amadou Onana. I can't think of a less Barcelona player than Amadou Onana. Everton's hopes of signing Jack, Har- Jack Harrison permanently are in doubt amid continued uncertainty over a pending takeover and their Premier League future. I wonder if those owners would prefer them to go down because they get the club cheaper. Troy Parrott has attracted interest from Ajax and PSV following an impressive loan spell with Excelsior Rotterdam. I haven't paid any attention at all to how Troy Parrott has gotten on there, but I do like Troy. He's Got talent. I think he can be a big player for Ireland in the future. Uh, seven in 17 in the league is not bad, considering he's more a second striker than an out and out nine. Uh, Chelsea will look to balance their books when the season ends by selling Conor Gallagher and a host of the stars. Um, I don't know how much they're going to get, but they need to sell. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Levi Colwell goes. I think he's the big ticket item they could sell and get 60 million for. Uh, Chelsea, Manchester United, and Paris Saint-Germain are keeping tabs on Frankie de Jong. He'd fit well at PSG. Um, Arsenal have agreed a deal to send Marquinhos on loan to Fluminense. No one cares. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain have offered Kylian Mbappe a new two-year contract in the hope of persuading him to turn down Real Madrid. That contract, according to reports, is worth £136 million 
not euros, pounds. It's about 150 million euro to 75 million a year, so about 1.5 million a week to kick a sack of air around. Mm-hmm. Arsenal scouts were at Molyneux to watch Ivan Tony and Pedro Neto. If they don't know what those players are like by now, they may as well not buy them. Crystal Palace have targeted Illaman and Jai as one of their main summer signings. I doubt it. Nice's jean Clare Tadebo is not ruling out a summer switch to the Premier League amid interest from Chelsea and Manchester United. Frankie de Jong does not want to leave Barcelona this summer, despite reports suggesting the Spanish club are keen to sell him. I think that's the thing. I think they're keen to sell him. I just don't think he wants to leave. Uh, Barcelona's financial restrictions mean they can only enter a race for Amadou Onana if Everton drop their 51 million asking price. They're not going to drop their price. Newcastle and Tottenham are considering a move for Genoa's Icelandic forward Albert Goodmanson. He's pretty good. He's pretty good, but he is 25 already. I don't know if he's got enough for level up in him for Spurs who want to be top four, but for the tune, I mean, he'd be a backup, I suppose, at either. So, yeah, I mean, it could be fine. Brighton are willing to sell Caro Matoma this summer following the signing of Ibrahim Osman with Barcelona, Manchester City, Manchester United, and Chelsea all linked with 26-year-old Japanese international. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Wolves are likely are unlikely to make any summer signings until after the 1st of July, so they do not breach the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules. How are they so hard up against it after the last few years they've had? So strange. Sevilla are keen on Jakob Kivor. I've never seen a player who's that average be linked to so many big clubs. Premier League chief executive Richard Masters is under pressure from a group of clubs, unhappy with his leadership over several issues. The biggest one is there's an awful lot of clubs unhappy with his leadership over the Manchester City situation. It just is. Uh, Brighton are among a number of clubs monitoring Borussia Dortmund's 18-year-old German winger, Charles Herman. Huddersfield are keen to appoint Michael Duff as their new manager, providing the Swansea former Swansea boss, who's based in the southwest, is willing to move to the area. I don't know that I've ever heard of a manager turning down a job because he didn't want to go and live in an area. Especially, like, it's not like Michael Duff really is going to have his his preferred choice of jobs. Um, meanwhile, sacked Huddersfield boss Darren Moore is a target for Port Vale. Final day is worth then. Uh, Arsenal and Chelsea are among the clubs to have scouted Nico Williams of Athletic Bilbao. United City and Chelsea are all interested in Karen Matoma. Uh, Kylian Mbappe has yet to agree terms with Real Madrid as the La Liga club struggled to negotiate with his mother, who's also his agent. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti has hinted the team do not need Mbappe, as they already have the best six players in the world. Well, that's just not true. Um, Pedro Neto is expected to attract bids from Liverpool and Arsenal this summer. I'd love him at Liverpool. But like I said, they don't know who the manager is going to be. So, you know... Uh, Simon Rolfe believes Xabi Alonso will remain at Bayer Leverkusen for next season which is probably the smartest thing he could do but you know people don't want to hear that AC Milan wonder kid Francesco Camarda will sign his first professional contract 
with the Rossinieri when he turns 16 next month. Despite interest from Manchester City and Borussia Dortmund and Brighton and about 14 other clubs, that kid is very highly rated. There's an awful lot of pressure on him. I, I just hope that Milan manage it properly. Newcastle are contemplating signing Lloyd Kelly in the summer. They're also been linked with Philip Billing. Barcelona have no intention of letting Ferran Torres leave the club in the summer. Jose Mourinho is ready to take over as a as Bayern Munich manager if the club decide to sack Thomas Tuchel. Um, I mean, he is lacking a Bundesliga title, so it makes sense to go there. Does make sense for Jose, but I I don't know. I, it wouldn't be the move I'd make if I was Bayern. Liverpool are set to offer Trent Alexander-Arnold a new long-term contract. Well, obviously, I mean that's that's not reporting. That's just playing the chances, the percentages. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday are will look to make a bid for Orlando City and United States forward Duncan Maguire if the club are not relegated this season. Now that's the guy who was meant to go to Blackburn and that deal fell through, which was the second summer in a second January in a row that that happened to Blackburn where they failed to register a player in time. You'd really have to ask what's going on at that club. Uh, La Liga president Javier Tabas says Lionel Messi was close to returning to Barcelona last summer. Um, According to Lionel Messi, he wasn't, but you know, Turkey and Lille midfielder Yusuf Yaziki has interests from several European clubs with a 27-year-old likely to leave the French club when his contract runs out in the summer. Good for him. Uh, that is that, folks. Nothing else to go over, I don't think. Nothing has come through in the last hour or so. Um, da, 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 da. no, that's it. So, I will be seeing you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Podcast Network.